Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. It is the end of 2021, the final day. In fact, it is uh, New Year's Eve here as we are releasing this episode. Happy New Year, everybody. I know that 2021 has not been the easiest year, but here on the show, we have managed to have a lot of fun and talk about some very important issues that have shaped the way at least I think of the past and think of historical investigation. And today, I wanted to look back at some of my favorite moments of the year and some of the guests that really made me think in new ways and challenged things that I had thought prior to speaking with them. I've really enjoyed this year on the show, some great discussions, and thought it'd be a great opportunity to go back and listen to some of those conversations. So going to go in chronologic order here and head way back to January 2021 when I was joined by Samantha Cutrera, author of Imagining a New We, and she was talking about how we think of the collective in Canada, who is considered we when we talk about Canadians. And she has some very interesting points and perspectives based on her experience teaching in classrooms when i say imagining a new we it's because i really think that educators like uh, all range of educators really need to understand that every single person sitting in that classroom is part of a we whether or not they are like legally a canadian whether or not they were born in canada whether or not they belong to one of our um uh one of our many groups that come here like as refugees and then like leave uh, after a year or a few months or as part of people that live on this land that don't consider themselves Canadians like First Nations, that all of these are part of a we that we really need to understand. And so what does that mean when we really put forward the past that are sitting in our classrooms rather than the past that are that we often associate as Canadian. And I put kind of quotes around that because what happens is oftentimes that Canadianness is always associated with coloniality, with whiteness, with the, the French English founding story and without all of the other stories around it. So it's really a call to be able to say like, we say that we do one thing, but what do we actually do and how can we start really deconstructing and witnessing that deconstruction of a Canadian we so that we can be more present about all the stories in our classroom, all the lives in our classroom, all the pasts in our classroom, all the histories in our classrooms. Another episode from early in the year that really stood out to me was my discussion with Shannon McConnell, who wrote Burden of Gravity, which looked at the Woodlands School near New Westminster, British Columbia, and some abuses that took place at the school. And Shannon made the decision to write the book as a work of poetry. The idea being that telling this very traumatic story worked well through poetry. And Shannon is someone who has a fine arts background, has writing degrees as well as a strong historical background. So I was very much taken by that decision, really enjoyed the book when I had the chance to go through it. So here's Shannon talking about why poetry was such a powerful and evocative choice 
to tell that particular story. What made you think that expressing this story, telling this story through poetry would be the most effective way to give voice to the individuals or who were at the school? Yeah, I, I had originally tried to write some fiction around uh, Woodlands, but poetry just seemed like a better genre, a better fit, because poetry deals with a lot of silence, and Woodlands in itself had a lot of silence involved. And I, I really thought that I could convey the institution and really humanize the situation in a way that couldn't quite be done in fiction, or at least I felt I can do that justice in fiction. One of the personal highlights of the year for me was the opportunity to talk with Rita Shelton Deverell, who has had a long career in broadcasting as, as someone who studies broadcasting. It was very much a thrill for me to get the opportunity to speak with Rita about her book, American Refugees. And over the course of the conversation, Rita talked about some of those foundational myths that so often shape the way we think of a country or think of a culture and how difficult it can be to actually challenge some of those ideas, particularly in the case of Canada, the idea of slavery and how much Canada compares itself to the United States on slavery to the extent that there are many Canadians who don't believe that slavery ever happened in Canada. And it was fascinating to listen to Rita talk about that particular issue. I, I think there is a uh, a confluence, and I, I, I started by saying I first thought of this book when I was in Saskatchewan, and um, there you have a particular set of circumstances where people did not just come to Canada, they came to the social democratic government of Tommy Douglas. That's where they were coming to. So my Florence James woman came to Saskatchewan to work for the Arts Board, which predates the Canada Council. So, yes, there's something very attractive there that does not exist in the United States. She's She's fleeing a place that has turfed her out as an artist and turfed out many artists in, in, in that era to a place, Saskatchewan, that has an arts board before it has full electricity. It's a very unusual place that she's coming to. So definitely the attraction is something specific that's going on in Canada. Uh, but on the flip side of this is you're right, there are stories we like to tell ourselves. And in this case, I'm using we to mean Canadians. <laughs> we have our favorite mythologies about how enlightened we are. So at the same time, time that uh, the Underground Railroad definitely existed, and it definitely got many uh, runaway slaves to Canada, we have lots of trouble remembering that there was slavery in Canada. We, 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 we are almost, to this day, 
if you talk about slavery in Canada, at least some people will tell you that you're wrong. Uh, one of my favorite experiences was being invited to a very uh, notable girls' school, private girls' school in Toronto, when they wanted to talk about media education. So there were a whole bunch of us media types who were invited to give lectures at this girls' school. This is about 20 years ago. And so I started my presentation. It was also February, so it's Black History Month. And I held up the two TV guides, the one from The Globe, the one from The Star. And they both were featuring shows that had something to do with the Underground Railroad. Only one of the series talked about slavery in Canada. So when I said this to the young ladies in the class, they assured me that I was wrong that there had been no slavery in Canada and that they were at a very good school and they had had a very good history class and uh, there was no such thing. I finally was just interested in the size of their negative reaction. It was huge. So we like to remember the Underground Railroad. We prefer to forget that there was slavery in Canada. Now, as we headed into the summer, I wanted to put together an episode that was a little lighter, a little more fun than perhaps some of the other stuff we had done over the course of the year. We deal with a lot of heavy stuff or have dealt with a lot of heavy stuff on the show. So I reached out to the phenomenal Francesca D'Amico Cuthbert to put together some road trip playlists. Francesca, of course, is an expert in music. She studies the history of music and hip hop culture. So I thought, who better to reach out to? And as of now, we don't record the video of our episodes. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. But I'll tell you, if there had been video of me during this part of the discussion with Francesca, it would have just been my mouth agape, chin on the desk, because I was so floored by the thought, the care that she had put into her road trip playlist. And all of the factors that she considered that never even occurred to me. I was just thinking, what's a good song to listen to as you go down the road? But she really thought about what that meant. What is the environment you're with? Who are you with? And how it all plays together, which just proved to me how amazing she is at what she does. So this is the intro from my discussion with Francesca about how she conceived of putting together her road trip playlist. For you, you're getting in the car, you're going on a road trip to wherever. What's the sort of stuff that you want playing when you're driving down the highway? Sure. So I like to think of myself as having a pretty wide range and eclectic approach to music. I'm a, I'm actually a trained musician and vocalist. So I spent some time uh, in my young life as as a, an artist at an art school. And it was there where I really got to expand my musical tastes. So I listen to everything. I mean, being a hip hop historian, of course, I'm immersed in hip hop daily. Uh, but I, I like all kinds of genres, R&B, reggae, dancehall, soca, reggaeton, uh, disco, funk. Uh, I'm a real, real heavy listener of jazz. Uh, I think when I'm not taking a road trip, but I'm just in a car, uh, I always like to tune into 91.1 FM. It's one of my favorite 
radio channels. Uh, but in terms of thinking about a good road trip, I'm always cognizant of the fact that during a road trip, you're very literally surrounded by sound and you're actually seated in it in the sense that you're in the car, you're immersed uh, in a very small and enclosed space. And I think for me, that means that you are absorbing sound in a way that is really different from listening uh, to a playlist through your headphones, for example, or even in an outdoor concert space. So I try to approach playlists in a in a conscious way in terms of what I want filtering through my ears on that journey. So some of the things that I think about when I'm putting together a playlist for a road trip are things like, you know, where where am I going? What will I see along the way on this journey? How long will it be? Uh, that's, of course, going to determine the length of the playlist or if there's going to be many playlists put together as a result. I also like to think about the temperature, funny enough. Oh. Uh, so what's the weather going to be like? I think because I, I closely relate music and sounds to the outdoors and, and the environmental sounds because I think about them uh, in, in close proximity. And a lot of times musicians are inspired and informed by their outside environments and it and it affects the way that they construct and produce their music. And I also think about what time of the day I'm traveling. So those are some of the more environmental elements. Uh, but I also think about the person or persons that I'm traveling with. So I like to think about if I'm the one putting together a playlist, uh, what do the people in that mode of transportation with me, what do they like? Uh, what kind of tastes do we share? Or, you know, do we have divergent tastes? Are we thinking of making a playlist as a way to introduce one another to different or new sounds, because I think that's one of the more exciting things about playlists, right? Like tapping into a new song and getting excited, watching the other person excited by it, you know, hearing something that they've never heard before and being really inspired by it. Uh, but also I like to think about what kind of energy do, do I want to create and maintain in that mode of transportation? Do we want a relaxing setting do we want to stay awake? It might be late at night, you know, so we have to be energized. So these are all the kinds of things I think about when I'm trying to craft a, a particular vibe in, in the transportation of the car, uh, but also the kinds of thoughts and emotions that I, I would hope a playlist provokes. Because for me, music is always about thinking, mm -hmm. uh, obviously being a scholar, but as a musician, it's always about mood. It's always about emotions and, and what can be evoked. Sonics. One of the things about doing this show is essentially a one person operation is that not only do I have the opportunity to speak with the guests, but I also book everybody. So I reach out through various means to ask people to come on the show to have a chance to speak with them. And for Habiba Cooper Diallo, who came on in the fall to talk about her book, Hashtag Black in School, I reached out to the publisher in February or March when I first saw the book in the catalog because I really wanted to talk with her. I thought it was such a, a interesting a, a approach to the book. She had such a unique perspective from everything else that I had seen on the subject. We had to wait until the fall, until the book actually came out. That was the publisher's idea to put it all together and get it released. But I was so enthused and excited about the opportunity to speak with Habiba and she was great on the show talking about not only the book, but just the idea of making a more welcoming, inclusive environment for students. And in this clip, she talks about the resources available 
for schools and for students in order to be able to accomplish that more inclusive, more diverse, more welcoming environment in schools all across the country. Yes, meaningful representation is what's needed. And I like how you speak about, um, you know, we have uh, various groups of Canadians, various cultures living in their different communities, doing their thing on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, in Canada, we love this idea of a melting pot of cultures, that we have a melting pot of cultures. You hear politicians talking about it all the time, especially during their campaigns, you know, that we're so lucky to have this cultural melting pot in Canada and we're a multicultural and inclusive society. But it's all surface level. It's all very, very surface level. Because when it comes down to it, that is not, it's not appreciated at all. You know, it, it's really not appreciated. And uh, my mind just takes me um, to this right now, which is, you know, you see black students struggling uh, in elementary school, all across the, the levels of school. And then now I think of black professionals, black graduates, whether in law, whether in academia, and the stories are endless. You hear about their struggles as well. Um, you hear about the case of, of this black professor at, at York University, and it's now become a, a legal case. And you just say, wow. And, you know, it could be the highest office. It, it could be black politicians. I, I gave the example of black academics. These are people who are, um, they have PhDs, they're, they have chair positions, they're, um, they're, they're, they're full-time tenured professors, and, uh, and still the struggle persists. And for many of them, it's as if they have to, to beg to get support from their departments, support from their universities, in spite of the talent, the expertise, the, resource, the resources, and the hard work they bring to their institutions. So, you know, does Canada as a whole... Um, does say larger white Canadian society really appreciate this melting pot of of cultures and um, and this diversity we have and what it brings? You hear companies talking about it. You hear banks talking about their commitment to diversity um, and how you know they want to capitalize on on the the diversity of their staff and of their communities. But what does that really mean? Um, you know when it comes to putting that into practice, when it comes to uh, to companies and universities putting their money where their mouths are, you know? I say their mouths say one thing, but their purse strings say the other, you know? When, when schools, say elementary schools or high schools, talk about their commitment to diversity, their commitment to racialized students. I actually really haven't heard that one coming from... <laughs> High schools, yeah, maybe some, but their, the commitment to racialized students, I, ha- I actually haven't heard that. <laughs> hopefully, we'll start hearing that soon. Um, and hopefully, it won't be verbal only. Hopefully, they will put their money where their, their mouths are, that they will bring in trained consultants, trained speakers, trained experts on uh, racism and diversity, on anti-Black racism, to do um, holistic training with staff because uh, like i think you mentioned earlier the 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 whole basis is flawed the curriculum where we've started from you know um it's all flawed because we've started from a point of 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 of, say a a eurocentric um understanding a eurocentric curriculum um 
I mean, Canada as a nation has emerged from a place of of centering Eurocentrism, of centering white people. That's that's our history as a nation. You know, that's our colonial past. That's how Canada came into existence. So if that's how the nation itself came into existence, of course, that's how our curricula across the country came into existence. That's how our financial institutions across the country came into to existence and all our other institutions. Um, so the basis is flawed to begin with. Um, so I really hope to see that change. And uh, I really hope companies and schools will uh, will do what they say and will mean what they say. And it won't be for talk's sake only. Another rather illuminating conversation for me was my chat with Lynn Gale, who challenged a provision in the Indian Act. And it was a 20-year, 15, 20-year court battle for her before finally winning. And there were a lot of challenges that were in her way as part of the legal proceedings. There were a lot of people who objected to what she was doing. There was blowback, pushback to her. And she profiles this in her book about challenging sex discrimination in the Indian Act. And over the course of the discussion, one of the things that really stood out to me as she was speaking was her answer to why pursuing this case, going through everything she had to go through for the amount of time it took and why it remained so important to her. Yeah, so I started when I was in my 20s and I could barely read or write. And so... um and I was pretty ignorant, you know, even in terms of who I was as an Algonquin went underground, although I did know I was Algonquin. So, um, you know, you do a lot of, and then I happened to, you know, I, I quit my job and I uh, went to um, undergraduate school at university and, you know, I learned how to read and write. And then I moved on and, and did a master's and, and then a PhD. And so there's a lot of intellectual growth there, right? And um, where I did my PhD, there was a lot of focus on Indigenous knowledge, so I, I kept moving deeper and deeper into the paradigm of, of, of the uh, Indigenous worldview. So, and then uh, I certainly was aware that um, a lot of people didn't like the fact that I was challenging the Indian Act. A lot of people were very assumptive and opinionated about me. Um, and as I grew, you know, I began to realize that being a status Indian really did not make me who I was as an Indigenous person. But at the same time, I knew I couldn't quit because, you know, when do you quit? Five years into it or 10 years into it or 15 years into it? At 15 years and 10 years, you just can't quit something like that, especially when you know that there's Indigenous women out there who, who um, they don't know who the baby's uh, father is and they don't want to say who the baby's father is because of abuse and incest and rape. And so I, you realize that uh, you have a moral responsibility to complete the task, whether you think it's important to your identity or not. And so I pursued it. But at the same time, I was also looking at the deeper political, broader political issues around Indigenous rights, such as uh, within the Algonquin land claim process, where we continue to be denied our land and re um, resources. So um, it's complicated, and some people judged me really hard, harshly for the contradiction of, of pursuing Indian status registration, yet not um, being happy about the, the denial of land and resources rights that Canada was imposing on us. 
but I could navigate that contradiction and I still can navigate that contradiction. And people really should think hard about criticizing me for pursuing this court case and, and for um, assuming that I was ignorant about what was going on. Right. This final clip that I have pulled is from John Sandlos, who came on earlier in the fall to talk about his book, Mining Country, which looked at the history of mining in Canada. And I was very much taken aback by his response when, when I asked about what is mining and the scale of mining, recognizing that human beings have always needed to use natural resources in order to survive. But it's the scale and the scope of mining in the 20th century that I was stunned by the process through which mining was accelerated through the 20th century. And John put it in such clear terms of how much we as Canadians rely on those natural resources. So mining happens on a lot of different scales. I think one of the things that we tried to point out in the book is that there is this incredibly long history, centuries long history of smaller scale mining, uh, mining in rivers, mining with smaller scale operations. In, in Canada, that dates back for a very long time. But the advent of industrial mining or machine intensive mining involving tools like dynamite and ore trains that would take large amounts of ore from the underground or huge shovels that would essentially strip mine or create open pit mines. That's only a very recent phenomenon, at least if you think broadly, maybe in the last century and a half. And I think one of the most interesting things for me in this book was seeing how much uh, the production of valuable ore and minerals increased starting in the late 19th century in Canada. So we have in the 1890s, you start to see tenfold, 20-fold increases in the production of silver, copper, gold, coal, and so on. And then after World War II, it, it's often 10, 20, 30, 40 uh, times the increase of uh, uh, minerals that are being produced in, uh, in that period. And so we are using materials taken from the earth on a scale that is historically unprecedented. We're also using energy, if you think of coal energy or if you think of bitumen mining as, as being part of the sort of mining industrial complex, um, we're using this stuff in ways and at a scale that we've never experienced before. And I think we're only starting to realize the consequences of that. And one of the things that we point out in, at the end of the book is that ore grades everywhere in the world are declining. Sometimes ore grades will improve if there's a particularly rich find, but for the most part, the quality of the ore, and that is the percentage of valuable material in that ore, is going down. And what does that mean? It means it takes more energy to produce uh, valuable minerals. It, takes, it, it produces more waste rock, more tailings, and ultimately to try to get a good quality ore, the mining industry often talks about pushing into new frontiers. So we hear a lot about the potential of mining on the ocean floor, or even in some of the more fanciful visions of the future, we hear about mining asteroids or mining on the moon. So I think after a, a sort of a century and a half, and a half of, of very machine intensive, large scale mining, the industry itself is having to confront some of the problems around ore quality that have um, that are inherent to to exploiting a non-renewable resource. So there it is, some of my favorite moments from our 25 episodes of 2021. The show did go on hiatus a couple times over the course of the year, but I am very pleased that we were able to get 25 episodes in. Try to beat that in 2022. 
if we can. We already actually have some stuff recorded that I'm very pleased with and excited to share with everybody as we head into the new year. So if you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show. Wherever it is you get your podcast, do the likes, ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps the show, keeps us growing. And do head on over to activehistory.ca for all sorts of written content. No break this year over the holidays. Stuff has been coming out, which is rare for us. We usually do take that break, but not so much this year. And of course, if you missed it, December 17th, Aaron Boys and I did our Ninth annual year in review, 100 years later, looking back at 1921. A lot of fun and frivolity over there. And of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, historyslam at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So that's it for 2021, everybody. I just want to say on a personal note, the show has changed since the pandemic started by necessity. In some ways, the changes are good. We're doing it more often because I can, and the guests are more accessible to me than they used to be. So there are benefits to doing it, but it is still a challenge. I prefer doing stuff in person when we can, just over the past year and a half. I haven't really had a chance to. So we'll see what happens in the new year. We are on the road to 200. I have some ideas planned for once we hit that milestone uh, this spring to june may or june I, I have to pull up the exact date is going to be the 10th anniversary of the show so I, i'm very much uh, looking forward to what the future holds for the show and and i want to thank everybody out there for listening whether you listen once in a while whether you listen all the time whether this is the first time you've ever found the show uh, thank you for listening and coming along the journey with me uh, it's very gratifying to know that there are people who are listening and who enjoy these discussions as much as I enjoy them because uh, 197 of them. I've learned a lot along the way talking to so many wonderful, brilliant people over the course of these shows. And uh, hopefully you have as well and have uh, enjoyed what we've been able to offer up here on the History Slam. So thank you for listening. I am very much appreciative for it. Wishing you all the best in 2022. Have a healthy, happy, joyous New Year's, and we will talk to you in 2022. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.